Um, before I was 10, I knew I wanted to be a volcanologist, and it's now a few decades later, and that's exactly what I am. And today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, volcanoes and how they work. We're going to start off looking at um, some examples of volcanic eruptions. We're going to look at some examples of the things that are thrown out of volcanoes. Um, and then towards the end, there's a little bit of the science, the explanation of actually what it is that makes volcanoes exist, you know, how they, and how they work. And then we're going to look at, um, we're going to take a fly through um, over and beneath an active volcanic rift in Africa. So we're going to start at Mount Etna. Mount Etna is the most active volcano in Europe, and it's on the island of Sicily. Etna's been in a fantastic uh, phase of activity over the last 15 years. And what's happened is that during that volcanic activity, magma's rising to the surface, bursting through to form new cones. And this is an example of a cone. Um, this is an eruption about 10 years ago, but there have been uh, more and more eruptions like this, particularly over the last year. So volcanoes are tremendously fascinating um, activities. They're, the, they're places on the Earth's surface where molten rock and dissolved gases reach the surface. And basically, because of the stored energy inside the molten rock, the, the gas at depth wants to expand, uh, we get violent volcanic eruptions. Mount Etna is not a particularly dangerous volcano, but even there, when the, volcanic, when the volcano erupts, you get lava and ash pouring out over the countryside. In this case, this is a ski resort halfway up Mount Etna. And every time there's an eruption, they mobilize the civil defense to build earthworks to um, move the lavas as they're, as they're flowing down the hill. This is a view from near the top of Etna during an eruption. All the red color we can see in front of us are the lava flows moving down the, surface, down the side of the volcano. And you can see the city of Catania in the background. Catania hasn't been overrun by a, a lava flow in about 400 years. But every few hundred years, lava flows will extend 10 or 20 kilometers down the side of the volcano, overrunning all of the villages and towns around the volcano. Etna's a lovely volcano to work on because, in fact, most of the time it's actually not very dangerous. You can climb right to the top, you can peer into the crater, you can do experiments in the craters collecting volcanic gases and volcanic ash samples. The, the volcanoes are uh, much more dangerous to those that erupt explosively. And the reason, one reason they're particularly dangerous is that actually with many of these volcanoes, the most violent eruptions that we've seen over the last 100 years have all been at volcanoes that were previously not recognized as active volcanoes. This is an example. This is an eruption in the Philippines in 1991, so quite a long time ago. <clears throat> and this volcano was, uh, showed a bit of unrest about three months before it erupted, and the eruption eventually threw ash about 25 kilometers into the atmosphere and buried huge areas of the Philippines under ash. Even small explosive eruptions can cause significant damage. This is the Tar River Valley in Montserrat, and you can just about make out the top of a house that's been overrun by a pyroclastic flow. The roof of the house has been removed by that flow. This is another example of a, of a, a, a very small eruption at a volcano called Nevada del Riz in Colombia. This is about 25 years ago. And what happened? The small eruption melted the glaciers near the summit. The water rushed off the glaciers, down the valleys, 
And the valleys around the side of the volcano were incredibly steep. Volcanologists detected that an eruption was happening, and they called for a, an evacuation. But there were two things happening. One was there was a football match on the television that night. And the second was there were um, municipal elections the next day. So none of the politicians wanted to call uh, for an emergency, so there were no alert was sounded. And the entire town of Armero was overrun by mud flows, volcanic ash mixed with molten water, and 25,000 people died. And this was a tiny eruption, and an eruption that was entirely, or the consequences of that eruption were entirely avoidable. So the reason we study volcanoes is not only to understand how the Earth works, but it's also to make a practical difference in terms of being able to say what's going to happen next. So even small eruptions can cause significant amounts of disruption. This is an example from Montserrat in the Caribbean. This is in 1998. Montserrat's a, very, a small island, and it's, it started showing um, signs of unrest in 1995. Within three years, it had built a big lava dome, and this dome essentially got larger and larger, and then began to collapse. So this is 10 years ago. Most of the dome slid off the side of the volcano and into the sea. But because this is a small island, the volcanic eruption has actually um, uh, devastated about two-thirds of the island. Two-thirds of the island are now out of bounds as long as the volcano is active. The volcano is still steaming. It last erupted about a year ago. And you can see that because it's in the, um, in the tropics, as soon as the eruption stops for a little bit, then greenery starts to grow back across the volcano. But this is, this is an eruption that, will, that may well continue for years and years, but it goes through phases of activity and then less activity. So what are the main things that come out of volcanoes? The thing that everyone thinks of is, of course, lava, the red hot stuff that flows down the side of the mountain. And um, this is an example of a lava flow on Mount Etna. And of course, as we all know, there are different sorts of lava. <coughs> this is uh, Pahoehoe lava. Pahoehoe lava is very, very fluid. It creeps across the surface. And the word comes from, um, it's a Hawaiian word, which just des describes the particular surface texture of this lava. It's glowing red hot because it's hotter. It's about 1,100 degrees Celsius here. And you can see whether Pahoehoe is running out across a road then it's actually catching light to the tarmac. Oops. So all this, all this smoke is actually from the burning tarmac and not actually from the lava flow itself. This is a close-up shot of some Pahoehoe. It quickly forms a crust. So this is a bit like, an, I don't know if any of you have eaten a creme brulee, but this is the same sort of uh, feature. You know, the kind of the very fluid material inside and the cracked top on the surface. And this is a little clip, hopefully. And so we've all seen video footage of flowing lava. It flows extremely quickly. And the hotter the lava, the more fluid it usually is. But lava flow, except in a few places, lava flows usually don't pose much of a threat to people. They pose a much more significant threat to property. The one example, or the one, one case where that's not true, is a volcano in um, Central Africa called Nairagongo. And Nairagongo essentially has a huge crater that fills with lava, and about every 10 years, 
that crater empties through a fracture in the side of the volcano, and the lava is so fluid that it runs down the side of the volcano at about 60 kilometers an hour. So it's about as fast as you could drive in a car on the uh, local roads. When lava gets a bit stickier, then it breaks up into blocks, and this is called uh -uh lava. Again, it's a Hawaiian word describing the texture of the, of the material. And this is the typical top of an uh -uh lava flow. This is a, you can see how the, it's kind of a crinkly uh, lava flow top. And this is a colleague of, my, colleague of mine, Ken, who's trying to collect samples by uh, lying on the cold edge of the lava flow itself. Of course, because the lava is flowing, everyone imagines that it's very, that it's very soft and you could actually stand on it. But in fact, sorry, that you could actually could, could sink through it. But actually, although it's flowing very quickly, it's actually really quite strong. So even with this pickaxe, Ken really didn't have any success. I don't know if you can see it. We had to drag him out of the picture at this stage. Uh, he's got so carried away that his um, helmet has actually started to catch fire. <laughs> but people like Ken need to collect the fresh lava as soon as it's erupted, because you then drop it into a bucket of water and turn it into glass. And with that glass, you can then tell that, that glass composition then tells you something about what's happened to the volcano on the way to the surface, or the lava on the way to the surface. Now, the one thing that almost all active volcanoes produce is ash. And ash basically means pulverized or powdered rock. So this is a small eruption in the Philippines, and all of this material is volcanic ash. And because the fragments are very small and they're warm, they heat up the air, and they get carried up into the air, just like a, in a, in a way, a bit like a thunderstorm cloud. This is ash that's rising up into the air. This is actually volcanic ash that's actually coming down the valley. So this is an, an avalanche of rock that's formed when the top of a volcano has actually fallen off. When you drop hot rock, it fragments, it breaks very quickly and turns into a cloud of ash. So this rock avalanche is actually moving towards us. Again, it's about 50 kilometers per hour. And in a small event like this in Japan, about 20 years ago, 40 people died because they were in the wrong place on the side it, within the valley. Ash fragments themselves can be very t can be tiny. So this is a tenth of a millimeter across. This is quite a coarse fragment. You'd, you'd feel it. It would feel like a bit of grit in your fingers. Most of the ash particles produced by volcanoes are smaller than the width of a human hair. And uh, this is a two eurocent coin, kind of a one penny coin with a penny in the background for, for scale. Now, the trouble with volcanic ash is that it gets everywhere. The particles are so small that it takes them days to weeks to fall out of the atmosphere once they've been injected into the atmosphere. And when they land on the surface, it's like, just like snow. It accumulates to great thicknesses, just like snow. But of course, it doesn't melt. You have to wash it away to get rid of it. So this is the last major eruption in the United States about uh, 30 years ago, the, the eruption of Mount St. Helens. This is an eruption about 10 years ago in Japan. You can see this car just caked with uh, volcanic ash. And this is an eruption in Chile just three years ago. So again, it's a tiny, volca tiny volcano, but quite a big eruption, and clouds of ash 
billowing up above the volcano. Now, because there's so much finely fragmented ash in, volcanic, in, in um, eruption columns, those, when those particles rising up into the atmosphere, you tend to get charge separation in the cloud, and you get an awful lot of lightning associated with them. Now, the one, one thing that has changed dramatically in volcanology in the last 10 years is your ability to watch volcanoes from your desktop. So, in the past, if there was a volcanic eruption, there might be a, you might have got a phone call from somebody saying, we think there's an eruption, and people would actually have to go into the field to see what's going on. But these days, with weather satellites, <coughs> and we can see eruptions happening in real time. So this is the eruption in southern Chile, 2008. This snapshot here, this is um, a cross-section of South America. So this is Chile over here, Argentina over here, and the South Atlantic over here. And basically, you can see the ash cloud traveling hundreds of kilometers away from the volcano and taking the ash with it. And as that ash, as that ash is deposited on the Earth's surface, the Earth's surface turns gray because of the coating of ash. The Chaiten eruption was a fantastic eruption. And this is just an example of this is the, this is the largest fragment I found from the Chaiten eruption, a sort of 60-centimeter pumice. But as you, as you can see, it's actually uh, incredibly low density. Afterwards, some of you might want to come and uh, pick it up. And that gives us the clue as to why these eruptions are um, so violent. Essentially, when the magma is um, at depth, a few kilometers depth beneath the volcano, it's full of dissolved gases, particularly water and a little bit of carbon dioxide. <coughs> and as that magma rises to the surface, the Volcanic mag the magma becomes saturated, so it's a bit like opening the top on a lemonade bottle. The gas that was originally dissolved in the liquid turns into gas bubbles, and bubbles are much less dense than the melt, so you get a huge change in volume, and you end up with bubbly rocks where 70 to 90% of the volume of the rock is made of bubbles. So these rocks are incredibly low density. This is just an example. This is the ash that fell after the Chaiten eruption in Chile. Six months later, they're still having to wash down the nearby town of uh, Futulufu, and the town of Chaiten, beneath the volcano itself, is no longer inhabited, because it's simply, it's simply been buried under the volcanic ash that's been washed off the volcano. But we know all about volcanic ash in UK now. This is ash that was uh, released uh, formed during the eruption of the Icelandic eruption in April 2010. In Iceland itself, you can see the ash, quite coarse particles. This is now a, a, a particle, it, I say, it, this is about a, uh, well, it's, it's only about um, 30 microns to 40 microns across, so it's smaller than the cross section of, of one of your hairs. And you can see this little, comp this little particle here is made up of even smaller fragments of volcanic ash. And if you look at these fragments under a microscope, again, this is the scale, 20 microns, about a little bit less than the width of a human hair. This color tells me that it's volcanic glass, so it's, it's, a, it's a liquid that's been suddenly quenched to a glass, and you can see these shapes here. Those are the shapes of the edges of the bubbles that help blast that ash apart during the eruption. And of course, even small amounts of volcanic ash 
carried around in, um, you know, within the atmosphere, or at least in the case of the Icelandic eruption, between about 6 kilometers and 10 kilometers in the atmosphere, meant that for several days, most of Europe, or many of the airports in Europe, were closed down because the airline industry uh, were terrified about the consequences of flying through um, volcanic ash plume, and no government wanted to allow airplanes to fly through that volcanic ash. But again, even with ash particles, we can use satellites um, in real time to tell us where those volcanic ash clouds are going. So this is a, um, a satellite image. It's been processed. So somebody's taken an original satellite image and looked at a particular wavelength, which is sensitive to the presence of volcanic ash, and you can map out where the ash goes in real time. So as well as the physical products that, that volcanoes erupt, the other main product they release is gas. <clears throat> gas and fumes. This is Stromboli in Italy. It has about six or seven active vents. And you can see the haze. I mean, it's, it's bright red because it's hot. But the material that's coming out of that is forming a haze. And that's mainly sulfur-bearing and carbon-bearing gases. And we now have techniques using... Um, Instruments. This is actually a. This is basically a large uh, telescope, which is looking through the volcanic ash cloud, and we can measure the composition of the gases coming out of the volcanoes um, remotely. We don't actually have to go right up to the crater to see it. But every volcano, every volcano that's active or potentially active that you'll look at, will be producing gas. Even when they're not erupting, volcanoes are leaking gas out into the atmosphere. This is Viorica. It's my favorite volcano. I first visited Viorica when I was seven years old and um, went back 30 years later to start working on there. Viorica's a particularly nice volcano because you can climb right up to the top and peer into the crater. And there's something, um, well, there's something unmatchable about actually standing there while well, we're wearing gas masks, of course. And this blue haze is actually because of tiny particles of sulfuric acid, droplets which are formed in the crater as the hot volcanic gas cools and mixes in the atmosphere. So this is the fume coming out of the vent. We can't see where the lava level is, but just a few meters below the surface, there'll be a little bubbling pool of lava. Now, most of the volcanoes on Earth that are active, and there are about 30 to 40 volcanoes that are erupting every year, and there are probably more than 100 to 200 volcanoes that are bubbling away but not erupting every year. Most of those volcanoes erupt material a little bit like this one. The color spectrum of the rock will go from probably from black to white, but um, this rock, this is a tiny fragment of a much larger volcanic bomb from Italy. Chemical analysis of this will tell me that it, this contains about 60% silica, SiO2. Chemical analysis of this whitish, this pumice sample here, will tell me this contains about 75% SiO2. So silica is the most important, most abundant constituent of almost all volcanic rocks. But there's one volcano in the world which is completely different, and this is Old Onyolengai in Tanzania, the, probably the world's strangest volcano. This is the summit of Old Onyolengai in 1993, from an aircraft, and you can, see this, you can see the active vent in the middle of the crater. 
Everything looks a rather strange color. It's white at this stage. We climbed this volcano a few times. This is a photograph from about six years ago. The lava flows at Aldonyolengai, this is an active lava flow. It's just a few centimeters thick. It's not glowing red. So it's only at night time that you can see this is red. The fresh lava is a kind of a deep brown color. And the, the altered lava, the old lava, just a few days old, is a pale brown color. And when you look at this material, the chemical analysis of it, it's actually calcium and sodium carbonate. It's the same composition as washing soda. Not an experiment you can do at home, but if you took washing soda and heated it up, it will melt at about 500 degrees. So most lava erupts at about 1,000 degrees. This is an active lava flow. This is a little channel with lava running through it at about 550 degrees. So this material is about as fluid as water when it erupts. Again, black, fresh black when it's freshly erupted, and it soon goes white or brown because calcium, sodium calcium carbonate soaks up water from the atmosphere and changes color as it does. So it's only at night, and this is a long time exposure photograph from some colleagues in Switzerland, it's only at night that it glows red because it's only just hot enough to glow. By 2000, 10 years ago, that, that crater had completely filled up with sodium carbonate lavas. By 2004, the activity is now focused at just one or two vents, so most of this lava, is kind of the pale brown color, is now really quite old. And then in 2007, it changed into a different phase of activity where it built a cone in the middle of the vent and had some quite violent explosive eruptions. Now, even though this material was only erupting at around 500 degrees, it still caused significant damage locally, and a number of people a number of the local Maasai um, ended up in hospital with burns from the lava flows that came down the side of the volcano. So, as I say, this material is a bit grainy. Oops. This is real-time footage. This material is so fluid that it um, just looks like water when it erupts. So here's a typical eruption we've got. It's not very, it's a bit grainy, but spouting from this vent and overflowing Looks like a test of just a waterfall from this vent. This is a really strange volcano. Another volcano that you've, you might not have heard of, but you've seen on television, is Erta Ale in Ethiopia. So this is a, a volcano up in the um, Ethiopian Rift Valley. And this is probably one of the longest lasting volcanoes in the world. It's a giant pit crater, maybe a, um, two or three times the size of this room in dimensions. And within the pit, it has a continuously boiling vat of lava that simply goes up and down. So for most of the last 30 years when people have observed it, the pit has simply been, has been sort of pretty full. So again, this is a, about 100 meters across. <coughs> and because it's always active, it's the one volcano in the world that every television crew wants to go and visit. So you've all, you've all seen footage of this. Um, volcano erupting. Last year, overnight, the pit crater filled up with lava and lava spilled out all across the sides of the volcano. Something that um, we, I mean, it wasn't unexpected, but nobody had any idea that it was about to happen. So this is Ert Ali. So we've looked at uh, some of the stuff that comes out of volcanoes, but where are volcanoes on the Earth and why do they form? 
Now, most of the world's active volcanoes lie either in chains, so up the sides around the Pacific Rim, for example. This region up here, this is a region called the Tonga Kamadak Trench, down to New Zealand. We'll look at that in a moment. And then round through Indonesia, the Philippines, Russia, Japan, United States, and, um, and then South America. Most volcanoes that are above the surface are associated with these chains. There, but there are also volcanoes underwater. There are volcanoes underwater throughout the oceans, so stretching from Iceland all the way down the Atlantic, and then all the way around through the Pacific, and in a few places where there are big yellow triangles, some of those volcanoes reach the surface. And it's, there's no accident to where those volcanoes are. Most of those volcanoes lie where they lie because they're near a, the boundary of one of the Earth's tectonic plates. This is a map of earthquakes over the last 30 years. And as you can see, most earthquakes happen in um, discrete places. There are earthquakes along the boundaries between the plates. And there are one or two earthquakes, only one or two earthquakes, and only a few volcanoes which are away from those boundaries. So most of, the, most of the reason why we see volcanoes at the Earth's surface is because the Earth interior is hot. That heat is escaping out of the Earth. And a consequence of that is that, or the way that the Earth is cooling, is actually through what we call plate tectonics. So the Earth's surface cools. Rigid plates move around where they pull apart. Hot material can rise up to the surface. Now, again, we know a lot more about... Oops, we know a lot more about the surface of most other planets than we do about the surface of the Earth. And that's because most of the Earth is underwater. But um, with recent investments in ship technology, for example, we can now take a sort of a, a trek. This is a, sorry, again, it's degraded a bit. This is now a, uh, looking at a, a section along, flying along the Tonga Trench. So we're just below the water surface, the deep purple color is between six and eight kilometers deep. Kind of the green and yellow colors are, uh, this is a sort of a volcano, these are volcanoes on the edge of the trench. So we can take ships out with submersibles and we can map the shape of the seafloor sea and we can map the behavior of volcanoes both underwater as well as above the surface. So we know where volcanoes are, we know what they erupt, but how is it that the Earth actually melts? Now, <coughs> most of what we know about the inside of the Earth has to rely on things that we can measure at the Earth's surface. And that includes um, earthquake waves, for example. So when there's a large earthquake on one side of the Earth, we can then measure where those earthquake waves, the sound waves, reach all around the rest of the globe, as long as there's somewhere to put a seismometer. And so we know from that that the outer part of the Earth is hot but not molten, and we know that the inner part of the Earth, the core, is solid in the middle and molten on the outside. We also know the composition of the, of the inside of the Earth by looking at meteorites. So this is a section through a meteorite, a one centimeter sized slab, and this is a photomicrograph looking down a microscope at another meteorite. So we know, or it seems pretty likely, that the composition of the whole Earth is very similar to the composition of one class of meteorites, which are quite abundant, um, and that all have the same formation age of about 4.56 billion years. 
So from meteorite composition, we can work out, um, and from the speed of seismic waves passing through the Earth, we can work out what the Earth's composition is inside. And we can also take tiny bits of powdered rock into the laboratory and heat them up under pressure. And if we do that, then this is a graph of increasing temperature and a graph of increasing pressure. And we can work out by experiment where rocks melt. And what you see is that as you increase the pressure, the temperature at which the rock melts increases. Okay, so deep inside the Earth, it's very hot, but the pressure is so high that the rocks are not molten. They're, they're able to flow because they're hot, sticky, they're kind of, yeah, because they're hot and sticky solids. So the temperature inside the Earth goes something like this. In, once you're below about 100 kilometers deep, the Earth's temperature doesn't change that quickly. It's about 1,300 degrees here, and it's you know, a couple of thousand degrees at 3,000 kilometers depth. So I'll just show you quickly. If we take, that's 100 kilometers, 1,300 degrees. So if we take a bit of rock at about 100 kilometers depth, and we now allow it to rise to the surface quite quickly. If it rises quickly enough, then it doesn't cool as it rises. It only it cools a little bit because it expands. So if we, anywhere where the plates are pulling apart, rock is able to rise up because it's able to flow, even though it's not molten, and eventually it'll reach the temperature where it melts. Okay? So you don't have to heat the inside of the Earth for it to melt. You simply have to change the pressure. And then, once you've got molten rock, it's fluid, it's buoyant, and it rises to the surface and erupts. And there are a few places on Earth where we can actually see uh, the consequences of this um, in real time. So we're now going to back, go back to Ethiopia, <coughs> where, on geological timescales, we predict that there, a new ocean will form over the next few million years. So this is a a graphic that's going to show you what's going to happen, what has happened over the last 40 million years or so, and then what will happen in the future. So this is the Horn of Africa, and you can see there's a rift valley which has been there for at least 50 million years. Presently, this is the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea, and in the future, 15 million years, 20 million years, that rift valley will pull apart, separating um, I wonder if we can go back. Separating Somalia from the rest of Africa. We'll just go through that again. So this is 40 million years ago, 35 million years ago. So again, we can see the two arms of the rift in here, and this is the Ethiopia. Sorry, this is the main rift coming through Ethiopia, and then down towards Kenya and Tanzania. And you can see that movement of the plates will simply stretch and pull these plates apart, and ocean will then flood into that sequence in the next few million years. And those calculations, are, those, are, those are based on observations of real rocks and our calculations of what will happen if the, if the plates keep moving as they're moving today. Now, the reason that this is a really nice place to work is because this is the one place in the world where you can look at a, a a spreading plate boundary where the plates are pulling apart, where you're not yet underwater. 
course, you need helicopters rather than ships. <clears throat> but you can fly across <clears throat> a spreading plate boundary. So this is, a, this is what the mid-oceanic ridge would look like if the oceans went away. You've got plateaus covered with lava and then large faults that drop down. And the reason those faults drop down is, I mean, you, you'll know this if you ever, you know, take, next time you take a Snickers bar or a Mars bar or something and you pull it slowly apart, it's exactly the same process. The rigid chocolate coating breaks up into fractures and sort of crinkles and falls down, but the reason you can keep pulling it apart is because the material in the middle is soft. So it's, it's the same in the Earth. The Earth's interior is what we call plastic. It's not molten, but it's able to flow, and the brittle rocks on top fracture. And when you have earthquakes in a place like this, you have quite dramatic plate movements. So here, this is a fault, and it dropped by three metres over the space of a couple of days in 2005, when an intrusion of molten rock started to move into the, this part of the Rift Valley. So, in this part of Ethiopia, we've had a large experiment going on for the last five years, <coughs> looking at the structure and behaviour of this um, rift. And we're going to spend the next couple of minutes looking at a, uh, doing, basically doing a flight over and through the mid-oceanic ridge in this place called Afar. So we're going to start off looking down as if we were flying from an aircraft, and the, surface, the shapes we're going to see Hopefully it's going to... It's just taking time to load. <coughs> Here we go. So we're looking down from an, as if from an aircraft, and the shape beneath us has, has been mapped from an aircraft using a distance um, recording instrument, distinct, basically a, a, a surveying instrument. We're now flying along the rift valley, and there are, there are volcanoes climbing up out of the valley on either side. You can see the fractures where the rift's pulling apart. And now we're heading up towards a large volcano at the top of the rift, a volcano called Dabahu. Again, you can see all of the fractures down the side of the rift. The spiky bits are just um, holes in the data. They're not real, okay? Here's a rift fracture. The edge of the rift here is a hole. Um, and now we're going to fly around the side of this volcano called Dabahu. And you can see lava flows here that have flown down the side of that mountain probably just a few thousand years ago. And you can see how these thick, viscous flows, they basically look like frozen glaciers where they've deposited their material. Now we're going to turn around and we're going to fly back along the rift, and this time we've draped a satellite image which has false colour, but it's now picking out the different... The different colours are picking out the different geological rocks. So the red colour is one sort of rock type, the bright red is a different sort of material. Now in this area we can actually look beneath the rift using experiments we've done at the surface. This is a map where the blue is cold and con uh, not conductive and the red is hot and very conductive. So we've used, essentially used a giant metal detector to measure how con conductive the Earth's interior is. And these red blobs are where we think hot molten rock lies, about 10 kilometres below the Earth's surface. 
Now, since 2005, there have been thousands of small earthquakes. And those are the earthquakes that we see in these little dots along the rift. And if you... <coughs> and as we're going to see in a moment, all of those earthquakes have happened in a very, very tight uh, region. So we can fit a single vertical plane through those faults, and this goes about 10 kilometers deep, and it's about 80 kilometers long. Okay, you can see there's a cluster of earthquakes beneath this volcano. We're now flying along the rift, and as we go along the rift, that's where all the, volcano, that's where all the earthquakes have been, and that's where we think this vertical structure is. So here we've got the, the active part of the rift, a blob within the rift, and here's the, the rift itself, or what is underneath the rift. So underneath the rift, we've essentially got a tear. We've got a, a tear in the rock, and that tear has allowed molten rock to flow up to the surface. So would anyone like to see that one again? Yeah, no, yes. No, no. <laughs> so we can use. Um, so at the, at the present day, we can use satellites to observe changes on the Earth's surface, and we can make measurements from the Earth's surface of how electricity, ele electrical, and magnetic currents pass through the Earth, as well as looking at seismic waves to work out where molten rock is beneath the surface. And in the case of Afar, this, this part of Ethiopia, what we see is that. The reason the rift exists in the first place is because the plates are pulling apart, but the rift is actually a very tightly defined, it's a very narrow environment, and it's basically a conduit, it's like a, a vertical sheet, and the molten rock all gets funneled up through this sheet towards the surface. And as, it, as that molten rock moves towards the surface, it pushes rock apart, and that's why you get earthquakes. So what's going to happen next? As I say, Everywhere uh, around the Earth at any time, there are many tens of active volcanoes. There are probably about 30 to 40 active volcanoes at the moment. And most of the volcanoes that are active today have been active for many years. So this is an example. This is Ecuador, a volcano called Cotopaxi, which um, in this case erupted. This is a, a picture from 1752. Cotopaxi last erupted 100 years ago, but it, it erupts every few decades. Iceland's been in the news. Um, people are speculating that we're moving into a phase of um, increased activity in Iceland. Nobody really knows that, of course. <clears throat> so in April 2010, we had the Eyjafjallajökull eruption, with, which started off with hot, fluid, basaltic magma, a very typical Icelandic eruption. And then after about a month, we then had a violently explosive eruption because the hot basalt had intruded into an older batch of magma, reheated it, and that batch of magma was a much uh, more viscous uh, material. The Eyjafjallajökull eruption was a very small eruption, but nonetheless caused you know, a billion pounds worth of losses across Europe, and it was followed earlier this year by the Grimsverton eruption, and there's lots of speculation that, that the neighbour of the Eyjafjallajökull will erupt in the, ne in the near future, Katla. But actually, the truth is that even today, we don't know uh, very much about the past historical activity of Icelandic volcanoes. We, know, we have a pretty good record of the large eruptions, 
since about 1100 AD. But people, people think there have been volcanoes under the ice, eruptions under the ice that we simply haven't <coughs> detected even over the last couple of years. Another volcano which is very active at the moment with some fantastic footage is a volcano called Tungaragua in Ecuador. This volcano has been erupting for the last 15 years. It's in a, in a, a heightened phase of activity at the moment. Again, violent uh, firestorms of hot um, fluid magma and then associated with that, these rising columns of volcanic ash. So the beauty, about, the beauty with volcanology is that there's always material to study. Uh, there will not be a supervolcanic eruption next year in 2012, but there will be uh, vigorous eruptions somewhere around the world that we can study. So I hope I've given you uh, some, a little bit of insight into how volcanoes work. Come and have a look at some rock samples afterwards if you want to, and thank you.